into Music Revolution, Mozart, Racine, whatever next. I suppose there's a number of routes that this, the talk part of this component could have taken. Really, I want to give you a vehicle for some really, really good music. But also, I want to give you a picture, as far as it could be possible to do so, of a very interesting time in British cultural history. In the spirit of a Festival of the Arts plural, I've tried to consider a few different approaches. So I'm going to look at institutional history, the opera house itself. I'm going to look at the singers and the performers of the opera, those doing the opera, and then those viewing the opera, those in the stage here. Mainly through the articles of reception, so how newspapers wrote about the opera in the period. <coughs> I'm largely not going to close read operas and tell you about their plots. Wikipedia does a fine, fine job of that, a much better job than me. Um, so, to begin with the site itself, the King's Theatre at the Haymarket was designed by the architect and playwright, Sir John Bamber, in 1705. And it was the site for Italian opera in London from about 1720 right through to 1860. Its season ran from late November to early August, and it would have twice weekly performances, on a Saturday and on a Tuesday. That might sound like a name of information, but later on we'll learn that Saturdays and Tuesdays are pretty important. They'd be double-built, so you'd have an opera, an opera buffa, a funny opera, or an opera seria, a serious opera, followed by a ballet. So you'd be cramming those both in the slot, from about 8pm to about 1.32 in the morning. Now, until the 1810s, opera seria was far more popular than opera buffa, and this affected the type of singers that you'd employ in the opera house. So those with high voices were more suited to the seria, so you get a lot of soprano, castrato, and tenor singers. Singers like Carl would have been out of work in the 1790s. But when the 1810s came along, Mozart and started to dominate. Carl didn't loving it, he would have been employed every week. <laughs> so, opposite the Haymarket were performed exclusively in Italian, and this is all. Okay, so in Germany, in Austria, not Germany, but in the, the Federated States, we now call Germany, native traditions were side by side with Italian opera. So you have things like German Singspiel playing at the same opera house as the Italian opera. This wasn't the case in London. The Haymarket Opera House put on Italian operas. There was English ballet opera, but it didn't go on on this side. Italian operas that premiered in Italy, obviously, at Venice, at Venice, at the San Carlo in Naples, and at the Scala in Milan, would take around about five years to get, on average, to get there. And this was even during the time of war. And if you think about the period I'm going to talk about, so 1789 to about 1825, an awful lot of that was spent at war, the Napoleonic Wars, followed by the Continental Wars. And this speed of transmission was maintained even during those wars because the kind of aristocrats that used to spend their evenings here would often be on diplomatic and military service abroad. They'd drop in at Milan, they'd hear an opera, they'd ask for the score, they'd take it back to the King's Theatre, and it would be played. And that bit of transmission kind of gives you an idea of just how aristocratic the Opera House was in this period, or at least at the start of this period. What I'm going to track you through is the move from an aristocratic Opera House to a kind of high bourgeois Opera House by the end of the period. Now, this is the period we call the Age of Romanticism, yeah? Big flashing lights, whenever you hear that. And the critical discourse around Romanticism tells you all about flux, about revolution, and about change. And I'm proposing that a revolutionary change happen on that site. Now, I'm aware that in proposing this revolution in the music of the opera, I'm asking a lot of you as an audience. Firstly, few things require a greater leap of historical imagination than me telling you that Mozart and Racine were the absolute avant-garde or something. You see things absolutely firmly, probably some of you might see them as firmly repertoire. 
They are firmly, quote-unquote, classical music. And what I hope to do is reach you with your post-romantic aesthetic preconceptions. Some of you might not even know you have them, but by the end of the talk, you'll be ridden of those post-romantic aesthetic preconceptions. And secondly, it's a truth universally acknowledged that just about everything that occurred from 1789 to 1830 can be proposed as revolutionary. So get, get a slot at a conference, get a slot even if you're lucky at an arts festival, propose a paper about pottery, crochet, poetry, the Italian opera, and tell them it was revolutionary. But I hope by the end you're not going to be sat there going, uh, you kind of stuck it on the peg. You're going to sit there thinking, wow, we really did change what I thought about a very tiny part of British culture for 20 years. So, to understand this cultural revolution that I'm proposing, I have to give you some idea of the status quo, to give you an idea of what the opera was like before Mozart and the scene came to town in the 1810s and 1820s, to give you an idea of the old style, the Baroque opera, this is something we're going to go back to a lot as a point of reference. Now, the key thing to understand is that the opera in the period was run by its performers, particularly the prima donna, who were often paid double the directors the musicians and the composers put together. Now these singers lobbied to have their familiar showpieces put in an opera. This is what means you have to, I, I to want to have really get my head around. If you went to go and see an opera, let's say La Zinga, the Bohemian Girl, you'd expect to go and see today the Bohemian Girl. But in the period, you wouldn't get that. You'd get a kind of bizarre pastiche, what we call a pastiche, okay, of lots of different tunes that the singer really liked to sing, kind of harped around the plot of the Bohemian Girl, seeking so tunes from an opera we're going to go a little bit later, the Alatsi, and you hear truth from all sorts of things you would not necessarily hear, a narrative. Now, the reason they did this was because if a singer had a particular skill, she wanted to make sure that you knew she had a particular skill. And this virtuosity was thought to guarantee the commercial success of a performance. It was presumed it would be popular if it was filled with songs that people liked, despite the fact they had nothing to do with the narrative they were going to see. You can kind of think of it a bit of a jukebox, really. Furthermore, the opera themselves were cut heavily because, as I told you before, you had to get an opera and a ballet in. So sometimes the ballet took a bit and they lost a few dancers, and sometimes the opera took a bit. So you could have a scene where someone dies, cut from an opera. Fine, as an audience, you've got no idea. But as we'll find out later, really, the audience aren't paying attention to the narrative, so it's not that important. Now, this specific cutting and meddling in the opera is part of a far wider kind of culture of miscellany in the 18th century. If you went to Whitmore Hall today for a normal production, just down the road, you'd probably see three banging symphonies by three well-known artists, composers, that have been composed together to give you a sense of a night well spent. If you went to a concert in the 18th century, you'd probably get 12 or 14 different pieces, some comics, some serious, all meddled together. Because 18th century British composers didn't, didn't deride things like we do now for being amateurs and miscellaneous. They, in opera terms, there was really little concern about the singular narrative and much more concern about the voice, the power of music to kind of transform you. It was not an opera house that had repertoires, but rather the singers themselves. They chose their star terms and they had their anthems. And I kind of struggled to really get this across, but the last night of the proms is one way of getting it across. It's kind of what we do there. But what we do there isn't sing opera tunes and on Sunday, downtrodden, came to the eastbound platform at Russell Square and it had an advertisement for this thing, the classical spectacular. And as you can see on the right, these are the songs that you get to hear at the classical spectacular. You've got it all. You've got a bit of English on you, you've got a bit of Italian, you've got a bit of German. You've got cannons, you've got fireworks. 
19th century, it's not. There's no fireworks in hands, but what I'm saying is that there's no, there's no sense of the narrative importance of the Rite of Valkyries. He was listening to the Rite of Valkyries since bloody good tune. Now, 15 pounds to 60 pounds if you want a ticket, they've got a website, they've done a pretty good turn here, actually. Um, now, as well as being concerned with what was being sung, we should also attempt to consider how it was being listened to, and by who, why people went to the opera. Maybe you're looking for someone to talk about regency culture, I think well, Byron's always a good place to start and probably end. This is when he arrived in Milan, having left London. Uh, the society here is very oddly carried on at the theatre, and at the theatre only, which answers over here to our, it's <laughs> painful talk as well, opera. machine, 
the effect of which depends entirely on the harmonic concurrence of all its parts to the same purpose. If the least spring loses its elasticity, if the smallest wheel receives the slightest collision on its pivot, the machine stops of itself. It goes on to say, the poet has to be spot on, the actor has to be spot on, the painter, even the tailor has to be spot on. In short, he says, if the skillful administrator does not hold all the strings of this machine with the greatest care, so as not to let a single one escape out of his directing hand, we must, must not wonder if the enchantment, being once vanished, the opera, by which its nature should be the most agreeable, becomes the most tedious of all entertainments. Now, if you read that, you would think that I'd been lying to you for the past five minutes, because he's telling you about an opera house where lots of equal cogs operate on equal basis. And this is a piece of prose which would be just as fitting 20 years later. I mean, the text is way ahead of his time here. But I'm afraid I haven't been lying to you. The opera, this was an exciting debate, but the building of the opera house didn't really change what was going on. People who attended the opera house, the same people attended the opera house as they did the old. And most importantly, the same people funded the opera house as they did the old. They demand the same kind of portly, serious opera with large, virtuosic performances. Now, to give an idea, is a bit of a great of such a work, I love the performance listings of the period before the success of Mozart and Racine on the London stage. The writer who most suitably fits the bill of having serious and seriously popular operas wore a prize over a number of seasons, whose music was so popular that you could go and buy a copy of his music via Pianola at home and play the tunes and get everyone else to sing. Happens in Jane Austen's Persuasion, if anyone's up on the Jane Austen, there's a scene when she translates an aria. Um, this would be uh, the Medico Chimorosa. Here he is, rather odd. Um, oops. Um, uh, although rarely performed today, mainly due to the great transformation in taste which I'm trying to outline, Chimorosa would have been well known to upper middle class and aristocratic London dwellers from 1790 to 1840. The work I've chosen to take some abstracts from is his last great work, Violazzi e Violazzi, which premiered in Venice in 1796 and came to London. Thursday, May the 2nd, 1805. It ran a nine further times, normally only ever appeared about three or four times in that season, and it was replaced again in 1816, 1812, 13, 14, 15, and in 1829. Now, the opera is a three act classical tragedy set in a war between the ancient Romans and the ancient Albans, and it covers two families, the Arazzi and the Curiazzi. Easy. Act one begins in a break during a war, a war which then resumes and they agree in kind of Game of Thrones style for a battle of champions to decide who's going who's to win the outcome. Now the women who are betrothed to various families spend that two trying to beg the oracle not to let the war go on, but sure enough in Act 3 the war goes on and there's a good bit of bloodshed. Now the oracle begins with the prophecy that Carl is about to sing, which rather ruins the dramatic thrust, the dramatic thrust that doesn't matter, of the opera by claiming that irrespective of what happens, Rome will be victorious. And I like to think of this song as a kind of bell, a kind of beckoning call for those still chatting to their friends across boxes or buying ice creams from the food sellers to pay some more of attention to what's about to occur. <laughs>
Ones that the Channing audience would stop their game of whist to hear. Ones that would be slotted into many operas written by the likes of Portugal, Pachita, and Mussolini. The first of these, Clinet Mufile Canary, is when the leader of the Albans, Gibraltar, Gilapio, says, My wife's great, she's wonderful, but she's Roman. And when war comes, I'm going to go and kill some Romans. The second blockbuster, which Emily is going to perform for us, is Esta in Pace y Domino, Rest in Peace, My Beloved. This occurs the start of Act 3, with Curiazzo, the album leader, dead, and doing that beautiful opera trick of performing a belting tune when he's just died. Find the spot where your voice is best 
and spend seven minutes, eight minutes on that song by just doing scales back and forth and showing people, and this is what people love, this is certainly what the people who return to watch loved, these real big belting tunes. Now, that Lirati itself, the opera we just heard extracts from, was a success, could be garnered from the amount of times it was reprised. But it's quite hard to see how aristocratic listeners received these works. The Lord or Lady subscriber who went to see them and who supported them was not the kind of person who'd write in a periodical or a journal. That would simply be uncouth. But I kind of think of the silent ascent, of the kind of money ascent of it being reprised, is a perfect emblem for this kind of culture. They weren't particularly, well, I don't think, particularly engaging with the opera. And so it's a kind of not carry on, and we'll keep reprising you, rather than any booming periodical article saying, this is the greatest opera of all time. They weren't saying it's the greatest opera of all time, but that didn't matter. Now, I'd argue that operas like the Arachi, the Arachi, which were serious and revolved around big individual heirs, suited the audience, but also the architecture of the brand new opera house, which, as you guessed, it won't work out now. So, the opera house was built around and based on Luigi Pianolini's Teatro Scala, the great opera house of Europe. And this is a big deal because Barbara's original opera house was kind of a provincial opera house. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. And you're suddenly saying, okay, we're now going to build a 2,500 capacity opera house, which will be, apart from this, the second biggest opera house in Europe. The man who designed it was a bit of a job spot. He was a stage designer at some times, other times he made costumes, he had tried his hand at music, and then he got this gig. This was the biggest gig of his life. It was such a big gig that when the great Angelica Kaufman painted it, he decided he wanted to repaint it with the plan of the opera house in his hand. Now, I was lucky enough last year to spend some time in the Sir John Soane's Museum Archive and to look at the plans of the original and the new opera house. And this plan gives you an idea of just how big the new opera house was. So what you've got in black is the old opera house in its entirety. And if you see these red lines here, that's the size of the new amphitheatre. So the new amphitheatre is almost the size of the entire old opera house. Now, the newspapers are going mad about this. They absolutely loved it. The Morning Chronicle wrote, the Haymarket is allowed to be the most superb theatre in Europe. The amphitheatre from the stage appears a kind of paradise. And when entirely filled, may be justly said, transcend our most luxurious ideas of man's heaven. <laughs> All praise indeed. Now, it was also a house designed, I think, for the old style of opera and the old style of opera goer. Now, if you look at this plan, which is a plan of the new opera house, this can give us the idea of why. Here's the amphitheatre, okay, dominated by boxes. If anyone's been to the scholar now, it's exactly the same. Very little space for the punter, down the pit. The rest of it, box space, just as it is here. But also, when you came to the Opera House at 8pm, you didn't necessarily have to go and see the opera. Especially not at the new house. You had the games room, the painted room, the little tea room, the tea room, the coffee room, the lobby. You could spend your whole time there if you liked, meeting people and socialising. And this goes one further, because when you're in the Opera House, you can also not watch the opera and be a bit of a spectacle. And you can do that in this thing I've highlighted in yellow which in the period you call Fox Alley. Now this was the kind of original peacock spot. And if you were the beau or the dandy of the day, a kind of beau Brummel or a Byron impersonator, you'd put on your best rags and you'd walk like a peacock and strut up and down. And what you hoped to occur was that one of the 
young ladies in the boxes, hopefully without a husband or a father, will give you a little, and you spend the night in a company. So, you know, even in the actual house itself, you have this kind of sociability being encouraged. So what killed this old upper house? What led to the increasingly middle class, bourgeois, and generally silent listening audiences, which began to take hold of the house after the premiere of Don Giovanni in 1817? How was a place which prized formal Italian Baroque or Brasserie turned into a house which on the 9th of April 12, 1817, premiered the double? A semi-series, plot-driven opera, multiple complex characters, lots of moving about, and a strong narrative. And how then was it given a further 26 performances that year? Now, you can formulate an awful lot of reasons for this. You can talk about the information explosion which occurred in this period. It was the first, the age of the guide, the time out the lonely planet footprint the four doors, okay? You've got London's pocket guide, you've got a picture of London, okay? This meant that this, the commercial cities that were beginning to boom in Manchester and Liverpool, you could buy a guide and know what was coming up at the opera and come and spend a weekend in London, like many people do now, and go and see a musical. But you could go and see an opera if you were wealthier. And this deal was, it kind of ruined the, the facade of this aristocratic highlight of London and West End thing. Also, look at, and I have looked at, I wrote, just finished a PhD about it, the period as the kind of Italian crazy period of English life. This is the period when Dante first started being taken seriously in England. It was the period when Nash built the London that we know now, the Palladian London. Okay? So it should be no surprise to people that when everyone else was getting fascinated by Italian stuff, middle class people were suddenly getting fascinated by Italy and its opera. But I'm going to talk about two things really blew open the space for Don Giovanni. One is the growing decadence of the opera house, and the other is a periodical press that really started to take hold. Now, firstly, the opera itself became even more decadent and aristocratic. You know, just as a rising number of bourgeois liberals were becoming more cosmopolitan, the threat of the new music to these people, represented by the likes of Mozart, was not supported by an audience who had seen the new politics of Europe create a war and an economic collapse. Now, to maintain this traditional style of opera, the King's Theatre employed a woman in 1807 who was at the time the greatest prima donna in Europe, and this is her, Angelica Catalani. The opera relied on her as their soprano until the end of the war in 1815. In an opera culture already led by divas, Catalani was a particularly strong example of the dominant theme. At the height, she earned a salary of £15,000 a year. That's more than everyone else put together. And she employed everything that the reformers really hated. But she's a real villain for these people. You can hardly see it. She, 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 she looks like an angel next to the piano, but she really was cast as the kind of worst thing about the opera by many middle class writers. Basically, Caroline's voice was so phenomenal, she could sing almost three octaves, that it began to be seen by those writers who were attempting to take opera seriously as a narrative that her voice was almost a master bakery virtuosity. Her overtly virtuosity musical style was seen as representing the excesses of wealth and conspicuous consumption of the opera's viewers. And Caroline exercised something that we call the writing of the book. And this meant that she decided what was on, when it was on, who it was on, and who sang it. She was, really, she, she was really the manager of the opera house. And she despised Mozart. Strong narratives meant that she had to keep time. She couldn't sing her own greatest hits. Nor could she ornament the artist because normally there was three people on stage who relied on her keys. So you can't suddenly go off on a little 
go during that CRM because you, you, you rely on each other for the song to work. Now, these kind of high decadence obviously drew a critique, a bourgeois critique that I'm going to talk about in a moment. But it also drew a popular critique, a working class critique. Populist xenophobia is an aspect of Regency anglo Italian cultural relations which have intensified during the Third Reich Wars. This is no great shock. Normally, during the time of war, especially war with continental, with the continent, xenophobia increases. Now, foreigners in this period became rendered in caricature as far, far more skinny, malnourished, animal-like. And John Bull, the typical Englishman, put on lots of weight, became more muscular. So basically. The English became more English, and the foreign became more foreign. Now, to find a musical expression of this nationalism, which fit itself against a decadent embellished opera, one can look to Charles Dibden Sr., the most renowned songwriter and performer of the period. He penned a range of anti-Semitic ditties in which Italians and, or, and xenophobic, in which Italians and their music were a regular target. That of most interest to us today is Jack at the Opera. Just 
continent. I like to think of him as a soldier. He could also possibly be a merchant navy member. Let's have him as a, as a, as a, naval, a, a naval soldier, a naval pilot. Uh, and he'd come back to see his love mother. She got off to the playhouse, he goes to follow her. And here you have a lovely convention with lots of metropolitan writing of this period, the mistaken. So you have a, a mistaken encounters with, with homeless people in De Quincey, but here you have a really firmly in, he, mis he mistakes the Haymarket for Drury Lane. Now, if you know anything about London geography, it's a pretty big mistake to make for two miles, but he does. And that's the, and that's the kind of prop to the, to the tale of kind of continental degradation that he sees. He sees all sorts of awful flirts in the crowd, the kind of people that were in Fox Alley that I was talking about before, and the music itself, you can't believe. What's, what's the plot, he asks? There is no plot, she says, exactly what I've been talking about. No one's interested in the plot. Now, not only does he think the music's awful, but he sees it as primitive amongst the Cathars and Wild Calabores, so amongst the South African tribes and native Indians. And it also has a kind of androgyny aspect that you start to get, and this is a very common thing in the period, criticism of continental males for being too feminine, for not being a good Englishman. And this he carries on when he's saying, you know, be decent, be decent. This isn't an Englishman's taste. And of course, what is an Englishman's taste? Prime late 18th century depiction of Shakespeare here as the kind of warbling his native wood notes wide with Shakespeare, an untaught genius. And that's what he'd rather see. And him and Mog go off into the sunset to celebrate. So, if we're growing decadence, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. If the growing decadence of the opera was a good place for populist critique, it was also a motivating factor behind cosmopolitan middle-class writers in journals like The Examiner and in newspapers like The Times taking an interest in the opera and the reformation of it. Now, it would be very hard to overstate just how important periodicals are in this period. 18th century historians tell you all about coffee house culture. It's something I don't 100% buy, but you know, having 50 or 60 people in a coffee house was just this amazing exchange of information. You know, a weekly like the Examiner would have 10,000 copies sold in a week. We estimate on average that between 7 and 10 people would read that one copy. So you've got between 70 and 10 and 100,000 readers. And the level of information that you can disseminate here is absolutely huge. Now, the Examiner was the great reformist people. Edited by Lee Hunt, it's fantastic, is a book, a, a drawing that you don't see very often, so one I found I really, really like. And uh, it's published by his brother John. It held campaigns against the expansion of the empire in India, against child slavery, against child labor, in favor of Catholic emancipation, and you might think rather incongruously, the reform of the Italian opera. Now, beginning with the third edition of the Examiner, Hunt included a regular column devoted to the Italian opera. Can't, it's quite hard to explain how, just how odd this is. I mean, this is, you know, it just it appears so incongruous. It's like a, almost like a Morningstar uh, column on the Italian opera. Or, or you know, I mean, I, I really can't convey that. Italian opera was a special, he admits in the article, Italian opera is a specialized interest for, quote, higher classes. And he says that there's new and exciting music going on in, in the continent. Music by Mozart, he says. And he says that this is being trampled on and being consigned by the aristocrats that run the opera house. He says the opera, as the principal amusement of the higher classes, should not be passed unnoticed by those who profess a general review of the times. And what Hunt and his followers, and there were many of them, did, was turn the Tuesday night performances, as well as those Tuesday and Saturday performances, and the Tuesday night performances into amateurs' night, and I reserve, or, and I dominate, all the time buy tickets for those who want to reform the house. 
Now, the Times, too, under the guidance of this man, the businessman Thomas Matter Alsager, electrifying the Thoughtworkers uh, Company playing in his image. It's the only known portrait of Alsager, who was a businessman and editor of Times, really, really important figure in the period. He wrote reviews that slashed the decade off, perhaps, and particularly the style of Ford and White Catalan, and he begged for an old Mozart. Now, this upright businessman was also involved in something that I like to call the Mozart Underground. And what he would do was, when he was doing business deals with Germans, which he did because he was a city trader, he would get them to bring him the grettos and scores of Mozart, and he would have mini oratorio readings. So in 1805, in, uh, let me get the, the address right, and inside, on Whitechapel Road, there was a performance of Don Giovanni in a small little uh, paint shop. I like to think of this as when Cold Orange was banned, you would occasionally get reels at the Scarlet, and people would go and watch. You'd hear about it and you'd go. I can't ever think that Astrid would send a few letters to his friends saying, I've got a copy of this new opera. It's absolutely radical and amazing. Come on, let's have a listen. Now, despite the efforts of Astrid and Hunt, the past success of Mozart in London was a long one. Because Fantuti arrived in London in 1811, that's 21 years after its premiere, and was repeated only twice that season didn't reappear for a full five years. The resistance of the Italian singers and their aristocratic patrons to Mozart and the quote, new music, was not broken. They still wished to see the Haymarket as a West End fashionable spot. Somewhere to see and be seen. Sorry, I'm in a concert, so... <laughs> <laughs> Someone who's maybe works on literature, this is a really important thing. What, 
what I think Ed is saying here is Don Giovanni needs to be considered alongside a book of poetry, a novel. It's a, it's a work that has a preface. And that's, that's kind of a big bibliographic signal. He says, Don Giovanni is heard with enthusiasm in nearly all the principal cities of that quarter of the globe where music is cultivated as a science. From the frozen regions of Russia to the foot of Mount Vesuvius, its praise is not limited by the common attributes of good musical composition. It is placed in the higher rank of fine poetry. Now, there's obviously a bit of in, indeed there. It's been heard everywhere where music is cultivated as a science, i.e. it hasn't been heard here where music isn't cultivated as a science, but soon he hopes it will be. Now, so here we have it, spring of 1817, Pat's house. Pat's still with the same aristocrats, mainly, and these were people that funded the performances. And they had a problem because opposary and opera in general in the period were still seen as fairly different things. And they were confronted with Don Giovanni, which is a semi, just kind of composite work. Now, the surprising one of this caused in viewers is perfectly illustrated by a famous anecdote about the poet Percy B. Shelley, who went to see Don Giovanni with his best friend, Thomas Lord Peacock, in this opening season. Here we have Peacock's remembrance of it. In the season of 1817, I persuaded him to accompany me to the opera. The performance was Don Giovanni. Before it commenced, he asked me if the opera was comic or tragic. I said it was composite, more tragedy, more comedy than tragedy. After the killing of the commendatory, he said, do you call this comedy? By degrees, he became absorbed. From this time, till he finally left England, he was an assiduous frequenter of the Italian
single period on it. So that it doesn't depend on the spectacle of a lap spelling out a tune on a spot. Rather, it was a, it's not a single narrative organic work, but it required some, it required some intellectual absorption from the listener. It was also a pain to stage. Singers didn't like it because they had to work out where to be at certain points. It's got multi-sectional act finales, and it requires a kind of dramatic skill. In vocal terms, it was also a shock. Traditional audiences, like male tenors, have to devise a bit of starter voice. But Don Giovanni had a baritone lead, like Don Giovanni, but it also had two more bass voices. One of whom is Laparello, which is this, this, this is the chap that played Laparello, Giuseppe Naldi, in the first ever performance at uh, Haymarket. Furthermore, Don Giovanni shares the songs around. You haven't just got two or three belters, you've got you know, Zelina, the Dom, or Ottavio, or Anna, the Commandatore, Leporello, they all have big, big tunes. One of them's coming up now. The aura we hear next is Bati Bati of El Maset, in which the peasant girl Zelina attempts to pacify her El Masetto and convince him she hasn't been unfaithful.
with the reception of these things in the times of the exam, they really went mad because they finally got what they wanted. So the Times report on the tune we just heard, the airs by the field performers displayed much taste and feeling, and the noble and often terrible and thrilling harmonies were poured forth by the assembled chorus singers with masterly precision. Now the language is important here, okay? They complement the technical accomplishment and lack of virtuosity of the singing. This was a regular refrain. So, Mostly precision. I'm not saying she was fantastic at singing. She was precise. She knew what she was doing. She followed the music. Okay. The Times also said of the man playing on Giovanni, they said it was sung with great effect by Ambrogetti. His volubility and his articulation are surprising. They're not surprising because they're a bad singer. They're surprising because they haven't heard such articulation and volubility in the opera house for a number of years. The next piece of music we're going to hear is La Cigaret. A duet between Zerlina, the peasant girl you've just heard, and Don Giovanni. Now, the Literary Gazette commented on this very, um, this very piece. The Giovanni La Cigarella Mano. He acted, the Don, with an amorous warmth of the highest colouring, yet within just bounds of propriety. This, joined to the truth by which his partner, Madame Fordable, depicted the conflict between duty to her lover and ambitious puppetry, returned this duet, remnant, sorry, this duet a rich dramatic treat to the audience who called for its repetition. In, in, again, you've got the language and you can't miss it. Propriety, a dramatic treat. It's not a, not a treat of uh, acrobatics or um, kind of onanism. So we have here crazy dramatic elements that can't be ignored for a game of cards or a bit of chit chat. You have to focus. Now, for this duet, Carlos McCombe, from the commentatory that he was, he's now the dog. If we cast our mind back to Emily's last story, when she was begging her lover that she hadn't been unfaithful, her lover was a bit suspicious about the whole procedure because of what occurs in this duet.
the applause for what was a wonderful performance, but make sure you don't hold them up too loud. The Don Giovanni Premier was the first time the new liberal press began commenting on the behaviour of the audience. There's a good anecdote um, of a city businessman shushing the then Home Secretary Lord Sidmouth and the Foreign Secretary Lord Castlereagh for talking during the performance. 20 years ago, you cannot imagine that occurring. And the noise was a topic for Alistair in the Times. He wrote, there is one custom which in all our public performances, oh sorry, there is one custom which in all our public performances of music, but particularly in the present instance, we should be very glad to see performed. This is in the performance of Don Giovanni. We mean that yielding to the impulse of admiration, excited by a fine passage, and interrupting it by an applause which, however judicious in itself, is perfectly ruined to the, to the effect. The end of the movement or piece is the proper time to testify approbation. It ends. The house, a thing quite an example on Tuesday evenings, was to the full as much crowded as on Saturday. Now this is the beginning, I think, this is the kind of watershed of, of a politeness in culture, and a respect for the work that we still observe today. One that will be fully implemented and written later on in the 1820s. And notes to the comment on the fullness of the opera. There was lots of times on Tuesdays we were busy as Saturdays, but this is a deal. He's saying, we can match you. On a Tuesday night, on amateur night, we can have as big a presence in the house as you can on your grand West End Saturdays. The British Stage and Liberty Gazette report that those boxes that were unlet on the Tuesday, so those people who didn't turn up with their box, these were thrown open to those unable to get seats downstairs. Now, if you're looking for an emblem, looking for the storming of the Bastille moment for the Opera House. This is surely it. They haven't turned up. You guys come in and see a great opera. Now, kind of this, this kind of goes into people who previously wouldn't have been seen at the Opera. Shelley, for example, wouldn't have been seen dead at the Opera. You saw Dean Don Giovanni, and until about nine months later when he moved to Italy, he became an assiduous frequenter. Another one of these men is Charles Lamb. Now, if any of you had the chance to go to Greg Dart's talk, I think it was on Tuesday night about Cognitz, you would have heard a great deal about Charles Lamb. He wrote to his friend, the director William Atten, who brought Don Giovanni, I am in your debt for a very delightful evening, and I am almost inclined to allow music to be one of the liberal arts, which before I doubted. So here we have, in Shelley and Lamb, two people that thought of the Opera House as a kind of decadent place, just a kind of hub for everything that they really were pushing against. Shelley particularly, the kind of the classic example of the, the kind of Tony Benn character, the aristocrat who hates aristocrats. Yeah? So we saw as a bastion for, for this kind of thing. He's now openly praising the opera and taking it seriously as an artistic form. Their immediate reaction was in keeping with the articles in the now victorious press about the power of Don Giovanni. So, bringing this talk kind of nearer its close, we'd like to consider what this change meant for the future of opera in this country. The, uh, writing of Don Giovanni and Figaro here, Alcindor writes, they stand at the head of dramatic music and will long serve like the pillars of Hercules to mark out the neighborhood of the know-how to future travelers in the same region. We take pleasure in noticing that the system commenced last season of studying to make the whole drama as perfect as possible, rather than particular parts prominent and the rest detestable. It affords at once the truest qualification to an audience and the, music and the surest means of improvement to music. Again, here we go the diction, yeah? It's just about a system. Um, of studying to make the whole drama. I mean, this, 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 this is an organic whole. This is a discussion of improvement and reform. There's a change in culture which is captured in the headline of the Theatrical Inquisition and Monthly Mirror. A 
And this, this Latin paragraph here says, here is a field open for talent, and here merit will have certain favor, and industry praise with its due reward. Now, this is talking about the opera house. Indeed, this could as well be the motto of the new reformers, middle class bourgeois that will sweep Victorian Britain. You know, here it is, that merit can be equal to the kind of grammar school ethos. They're talking about here the opera house. Now, it also shows in, in this little bit just how much the new opera was dominant. This is in 1818. You can see from the names on there. There's an awful lot of Mozart there, and there's a little bit of Rossini starting to creep in. Now, as we began to look forward, there began to be even more kind of interesting periodicals forming. William Ayrton, the man who brought on Giovanni, founded something called the Harmonica, a journal of music. And this had all sorts of articles about the physics of music, about sound waves. This is between 1820 and 1823. It's really quite radical stuff. Now, the new polite middle-class listening culture was in the ascendant. So the opera house changed. Remember how I said aristocratic opera house, aristocratic fittings, and so too middle class opera house, middle class fittings. You got gas lights in 1818, that might sound like the biggest revelation in the world, but it meant if you were a fan of the stores, you could read them much more easily, and the librettos. Also, in 1820, benches were replaced by stalls, seats with backs. Now that meant if I saw my mate Sir Henry six rows in front, I couldn't just pile over the rows to give him a chat. Orders the scene experience. The changes that we, we just talked about in the opera, both musically and in terms of the house itself, really paved the way for what was to come to, for an audience that was engaged with works and engaged with opera that could now be ready for the big musical sensation of the early 1820s and late 1810s, and that was Racine. Now, we're going to end with a wonderful long piece from Senegalian, Racine's great last Italian opera. But before I introduce that, We'll be talking in the break. We've got to work out how the scene fits in with this revolution that I've talked about. So, Mozart, Mozart ended the right of the book, told you that. No longer were the singers in control. But that was because he was Mozart and he was a significant figure and he had a cavalcade of support behind him. And he couldn't just be any old opera, opera writer and say, You're not having control, I'm having control. But that wasn't a problem for Rossini. He, he was relatively famous in 1813, he was a superstar by 1850. And by the time he got to England, which we're going to talk about, he was really more of a global success. Now, if you know Rossini's music, it's not that it lacks embellishment. When I talk about stuff, it's highly embellished. But that's embellishment controlled by him. He is the person writing embellished scores. Furthermore, it's got strong plot, and it requires narrative action. But there's also a central paradox in Rossini. He both looks forward by having control and power some he looks even further forward, I would say, he looks forward to the charisma of the realist style by kind of assuming her more fantastical plots. But also, he looks back. I mean, the passage we're about to hear is from an opera, a classical tragedy, which narrates the political intrigue of the Babylonian queen. And this is a plot not unlike Chilorosa, which began this talk, which I told you was completely old hat. Furthermore, Rossini has his own kind of pastiche, his own kind of cut and paste. But his cut pace really is more taking tunes from his own offers. Anyway, there's always that Rossini sound. That Rossini sound isn't a coincidence. It's because he's playing the bloody same tune over and over again. So he would cut pace from his own offers and bring it in. And yet, what made Rossini so successful was that he could prescribe both the new orchestrally driven sound and look back to the core of the rock opera that dominated for a hundred years. So in 1823, Rossini came to London from Venice, where Semeramide premiered in front of the Emperor of Austria and the Tsar of Russia. 
Now, he stopped at Paris en route, and on his arrival, Henri Bale, better known to you and I as Stendhal, said the following. Napoleon is dead, but a new conqueror has already shown himself to the world. From Moscow to Naples, from London to Vienna, from Paris to Calcutta, his name is constantly on every tongue. So when he arrived in London, he comfortably claimed that alongside Lord Byron, who was on a boat to his death in Greece, he was the most famous cultural figure in Europe. He arrived in December, on the 29th of that month, he performed for the king at the pavilion in Rome. The scene was present at the premiere of the opera we're about to hear, on July the 15th, 1824. He had five plays that year, six the next, six the following, five the one after that. This was, a, this was a big, big, big thing. In fact, in 1824, the season where a was in London, out of the 67 operas that were performed, 44 of them were by receivers. The Times claims that the composer's personal superintendence at the house vastly improved the quality of performance. Now, the aria about here is a bass contour aria, the last in the line the great bass voices that Racine brought to the stage, something that would have been unfathomable in the 1790s. The aria is called Verti Ferma di Placa, and is rarely heard today for its difficulty. To set the scene, Prince Asura, that's Cobb, is haunted by the ghost of someone he has murdered, and he begs forgiveness to the gods before he composes himself and vows to lead his troops into battle. 